Good morning. Good to see you this awesome Southern California morning. We've got some liquid sunshine going on today and uh, keeping things green around here for a little bit longer this year than normal, which is beautiful. And um, by the way, this past Wednesday night, we actually did do uh, 1 Samuel 20 that we threatened to do for weeks and weeks. So that means this Wednesday night we'll be looking at 1 Samuel 21. So come on out and join us for that. And also, I would encourage you to be praying. We've been talking to you about some opportunities that Amir Sarfati and I are going to uh, have in front of us during the month of July and early August, where we're going into some of these areas where the churches are small, the presence of the church in the country is small, and they couldn't really afford to have a prophecy conference. So you good people at CCT and those that behold Israel have underwritten all the costs uh, in order for us to make these travels and journeys. And they'll begin on the 21st of July, the following weekend. Well, we'll be in Perth, Australia. Then we'll be headed over to Melbourne, Australia on the 27th. And then also on August 3rd, we'll be in Auckland, New Zealand. So please be praying for these events. And before that, on June 28th, I'll be speaking at the Hope for Our Times Prophecy Conference out in Indian Wells, uh, California. So you can lift that up as well. So please be in prayer uh, for these things. And I know you will because you said, Amen. Thank you. It is often said of this weekend that all gave some and some gave all. And happy Memorial Day is probably one of the biggest misnomers that has ever spoken in our country because it is a day of remembrance and a day of mourning for many families. So I would like to begin our time with respect for those who have a family member who died fighting to obtain the freedom for our country, maintain the freedom for our country, or obtain the freedom for people in other countries and foreign wars. So in respect of our military and those who paid it all, would you please stand this morning and let's offer a word of prayer for the families who are mourning the loss of a loved one today. Father, we are so grateful for the land in which we live. And Lord, even as we often repeat, this is a land of the free and the home of the brave. And Lord, we recognize that there have been many brave men and women throughout our brief history as a nation. Lord, who fought against tyranny, uh, who fought against division and slavery. Lord, who have fought on foreign soil because of oppressors and tyrants who sought to control the world. And Lord, we thank you for all who have served, but we remember today especially for those who paid what we've dubbed the ultimate price, that we and others might be free. Lord, we pray for those families tomorrow as we all gather and celebrate and barbecue and have a day off and all the things that are associated with this day. But we lift them up today. We ask God that you would strengthen them and comfort them. And Lord, as they say in Israel concerning the lost loved one, may their memories be a blessing. So, Lord, we pray your comfort over them. We thank you for our country. And that we still have those today, God, who are willing to stand up and serve in our military. And we pray, Lord, your blessings on the households who will be mourning tomorrow, one whom they love, who has gave all. We thank you for our time together today as well and ask your blessing on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are back in the book of Acts. Are you ready to go? Open your Bibles to Acts 17 this morning. We'll finish off the chapter looking at 16 through 34. Now, it's been a while, so I'll remind you that our title in the first uh, 15 verses of Acts was Tactical Christianity. Now, in the opening verses, we noted that Paul and company had made the 100-mile journey from Philippi to a city known as Thessaloniki. Now, the interesting thing was that along the way, they passed right by Amphipolis, which means a city by the sea. And another 30 miles, they passed a city named after the Greek god Apollo, Apollonia, and didn't turn aside to either one of these two major cities, but rather headed directly to where the Lord was leading them. Now, we noted that Thessaloniki was founded, excuse me, in 315 B.C. It was named for and by 
the wife of Cassander, one of the four generals that Alexander the Great's empire was divided up into. It was the capital city of Macedonia. It had a population of some 200,000 people, and it was an uh, important commercial center. It was also in the Roman Empire what's called a free city. In other words, they maintained self-governance. Now, Paul, upon his arrival in Thessaloniki, did what was customary for him in that he went to the local synagogue. And we're told that he went there for three consecutive Sabbaths to preach the resurrected Christ to them, explaining and reasoning from the scriptures that the Messiah of Israel had to suffer death and thus rise from the dead. Now, there was also another custom that had developed in Paul's travels, and it wasn't a good one. And Acts 17, 5 and 6 reminded us, that the Jews who were not persuaded by Paul's preaching, obviously, became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, the host home to Paul and the missionary team, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here Two, well, truth be known, they were actually turning the world right side up. It was already upside down. Now, there are those today who, like in Paul's day, don't like what the church stands for, don't like our message, and see us as turning things around or upside down. And they create uproars against the church today through a mob mentality, bringing false accusations against the people of God. Now, we're often accused of being bigots, but we are not bigots. Hello? We are often accused of being haters, but we are not haters. We are those who carry the cross and the love of Christ to a lost and dying world, seeking to turn people's lives around through the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, from Paul's experience, we glean three truths concerning our efforts to reach the world. We were reminded that as he passed by two cities and went to another, that tactical Christianity is simply spirit-led living. And if we are going to live a life that fulfills the Great Commission and is led by God to the places he wants us to reach others, we need to recognize that walking in the Spirit is a necessity. We also learn that persecution is a Christian reality, but it's not our pursuit. In other words, we don't go out of our way to be attacked by other people. And we'll learn more about that this morning. And we also were reminded that altering our message is never the right tactic. And we'll talk more about that today as well. Now again, Paul passed by two cities that needed to hear about Jesus because he was being led by the Spirit to Thessaloniki. And when the mob came after Paul and Silas, the brethren sent the pair away by night to Berea. When they arrived in Berea, they did what they always do. They taught in the synagogue, got ran out of Thessaloniki and Berea in the same manner, just as Paul had gotten stoned in Lystra, beaten and arrested in Philippi, run out of Thessaloniki, as we mentioned. And now we find Paul being shipped out of Berea, making a 200-mile journey to the city of Athens, leaving Timothy and Silas behind with instructions to come to him in Athens as soon as possible. Now, our chapter is kind of interesting in the realm of interpretation because many see this as a failed evangelistic attempt. In other words, Paul became too adapted to the culture and missed the opportunity to preach Christ and him crucified. Now, some say Paul's efforts were, uh, the response to his efforts were weak in that Paul failed to mention the cross, and thus the response was small. Some say only two people responded to the gospel. But this morning we'll have the opportunity to set the record straight about exactly what happened here at the Areopagus in Athens. Now, I believe that others see as proof what happens here with Paul because he is dealing with the intelligentsia of the day, that what he would later write was likely having this scene in mind in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, where Paul said, You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble are called. And Paul finds himself in the think tank 
of the world at the time, the Areopagus in Athens. And the word means the hill of Ares, or as we call it, Mars Hill. I actually was blessed last year to preach on what they have called Mars Hill and the city of Athens, and the ruins there are absolutely amazing. Now, our title is the same as last time, as Paul continues to be tactical in his approach as he now is introduced to a new audience, so to speak, and he switches gears a bit in how he approaches this crowd, those who are wise in the flesh. So our title is therefore simply Tactical Christianity, Part 2. Now, you can call it TC2 if you're so inclined. Now, what we're going to find in our text is actually a model for witnessing the people. And while Paul's audience is going to change and his tactics are going to adapt to his audience, his message is going to remain consistent, as was our last point indicating to us last time we were together in Acts. He preached in the synagogues and the cities he was run out of in previous verses and chapters, and yet he maintains the same practice when he arrives now in the city that is, uh, was home to the think tank of the world. Now, what we're going to find in our text is simply three things that are tactics when we obey the Great Commission to go into the world and preach the gospel. And what we're going to find is audience awareness, we're going to find spiritual engagement, and then we're going to examine the inevitable outcome. And these are the subheadings over the three sections we'll look at as we finish off this chapter. So let's look in on Paul's meetings with the great minds of the day, the deep thinkers of the day, in the city of men like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Zeno. Our first tactic that we'll address this morning is audience awareness or being conscious and cognizant of who we're speaking to. So would you stand this morning and read with me, please, from Acts chapter 17. We'll start with verses 16 to 23. Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And Lord, we ask this morning your aid, Lord, both on the lips of the speaker and the ears of the hearer, that we might be further equipped for the work of ministry. And Lord, that we might see that our calling to go to the world and preach the gospel stands yet today. And Lord, may we have a greater sense of urgency to reach the lost than ever before in these closing minutes of church history. We give you glory and honor for all that your word says to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now we're told as Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy to arrive, that he was provoked by all the idols that he had seen in the city. We could translate that phrase as the city was actually overrun with idols. Now, the word provoke can also be translated as exasperated. He was very frustrated with the things that he saw. And it was said of the city of Athens that it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. And some historians pointed out that at the time of Paul's visit, the population of Athens was actually 10,000 people, but it was home to 30,000 gods. And thus the saying, the accusatory statement, that it was easier to find a god than a man in the city of Athens. 
It had been some 400 years since the golden age of the philosophers and statesmen like Pericles, who was actually the one who commissioned the building of the Parthenon, and Paul found this city and its prestige to be intact. It was still the intellectual center of the world, much like uh, Oxford in the 19th century, and scholars from all over the world would come and make Athens their adopted home to be part of the intelligentsia and enter the debate and hear new things. The streets were lined with idols of deities fashioned from gold, silver, and bronze, and they glistened in the sun with the backdrop of the Acropolis and the Parthenon, and the city was therefore dazzling to the eye when one would pass through. Now we have to remember, Paul was a monotheist. He believed that there is but one God, he being a Jew by ethnicity and a Christian by second birth, he would become exasperated with what he is seeing in the city. I think we often become exasperated with the things we're seeing happening around us today. Amen. Every idol demonstrated the Athenians' hunger for God, but it also testified that they were spiritually empty. And having engaged the Jews in the synagogue and some of the Gentiles in the Agora or the marketplace, some Epicureans and Stoics invited Paul to the debate where the intelligentsia met to discuss matters. Now, the Epicureans believed that everything happened by chance. They believed that there were gods, but they were uninvolved in humankind and things taking place on the earth. They believed that the death of a human was the end of all existence. Therefore, the chief end of life to the Epicurean was the pursuit of pleasure. Now, the competing and dominant view of the day as well was the viewpoint from that of the Stoics. They were pantheists. They believed that God was in everything. They And uh, anything that happened, they believed, was simply your destiny. There was nothing you could do to change it. And therefore, they lived uh, really in the opposite of the pursuit of pleasure of the Epicureans. And in essence, they lived in apathy and a fatalistic hopelessness. And verse 21 says that those who gathered there were always hungry to hear something new. And they spent their time in pursuit of nothing else. Yet these who were always hungry to hear something new accused Paul of being a babbler. Now that's an interesting insult that they throw at Paul. Because if you look at the Greek word, it actually means a seed picker. And what it implies is a bird who goes around picking seeds from here and there and everywhere and doesn't have, figuratively, and this is what they're accusing Paul of, never even having an an original thought, just gathering what other people said and throwing it out as though it was his own. Now, the interesting thing is that's exactly what this group did. They just listened to one another and heard new things and spread them about as fact. Good thing we don't have any of that going on today. Now, Isaiah wrote of the foolishness of idolatry in chapter 44, where he said this, those who make an image, all of them are what? Useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Yet later in the same chapter in 44, 14 to 17, Isaiah says he cuts down cedars for himself. And takes the cypress and the oak, he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat, he roasts the roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Isaiah is presenting how ridiculous it is to build something yourself and then pray to it. The opposite has happened in our case, however, if we recognize what the Bible teaches, we didn't build God, he made us, and he is the creator of all things, amen? Amen. Now, this is the audience that Paul is addressing. This 
is who he is bringing the truth to. Those who hired craftsmen and metalsmiths to make idols from the natural resources of the earth and then turn around and treat them as though they are actual gods. Now, the same thing is happening in our world today, though much of the time what is fashioned is not fashioned by man's hand, but rather fashioned by man's mind. And then someone puts pen to the page and it becomes doctrines and belief systems. So knowing his audience, knowing that he is addressing idolaters, Paul says, listen, you better turn or you're going to burn, you stupid idol worshipers. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says at all. Paul, passing through the streets of Athens, said, It's become clear to me that you have a great interest in religion. And you even made an image to a God that may be unknown to you. And I want to talk to you about him whom you worship without knowing. Now, this gives us our first tactical consideration when engaging with those who are caught up in idolatry, who don't know that their search is in vain. Here's the first thing I'd like you to jot down this morning. Listen, the Great Commission is telling others what we believe, not discussing what others do. The Great Commission is telling others what we believe, not discussing what others do. Now, remember, this is a starting point. It's about knowing who you're talking to. And far too many Christians today close the door of the mind of the one they're wanting to share with by insulting and condemning what it is that they believe. And Paul considers the idolatry of the audience. He finds a statue to any gods they may have missed. And he doesn't say, let's run down the list of why all these deities, these 30,000 statues are all wrong. Let's talk about what you yourselves acknowledge that you are missing. Now, here's the point. The gospel itself exposes both the emptiness and the errors of false religion. That's why Jesus said, go to the world and preach what? The gospel to who? To every creature. Why? Because it exposes the personal and spiritual emptiness of the hearer, and it also deals with the errors of false religion. And that's why Jesus said in Mark 16, 15 to 18, to his disciples, go into the world, all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Excuse me. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Let me remind you this morning that what we believe, and the one in whom we believe, has transformational power. It isn't just simply an empty belief system based on words on a page. We serve the true and living God. His word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what is written in the Bible comes to pass as written in the Bible. You can cease from being condemned by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's been true for whoever has come to him as Savior and Lord. Listen, our message has transformational power that other belief systems lack. And I can't tell you how many times I have heard a Muslim say, my journey to Christ began when I heard that the God of the Bible, not Allah, but Jehovah loves me. I've never heard that he loves me. I got an email this week from a man who simply said, I've spent my life as a Muslim. Jesus appeared to me in a dream. I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. How do I tell other Muslims to come to faith in him? He spent his whole life in something that is empty, something that was nothing more than words on a page, something without any transformational power whatsoever, something that was based on his own works and hopes of achieving a status that allowed him by good works outweighing his bad access into a place we call paradise. Listen, we're not going to heaven because of what we have done. We're going to heaven because of what was done for us. And that is what is different about Christianity. Now, let me say this as well. 
We deal differently with those who claim to be Christians than we do those who are caught up in false religions. We need to make a distinction because Ephesians 5.11 says to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But we have the responsibility to do what? To expose them. Now listen, anybody ever run into some of those nice looking young guys on a bicycle? In your neighborhood and a badge who come with their white shirt and tie and knock on your door. I haven't run into any in a while. I think I'm a marked man. But the last two young men that I actually had several encounters with had changed their strategy with me. And they came up to me and uh, set their bikes down and said, hey, can we tell you about a modern day prophet? And I said, well, you know what? Jesus said John the Baptist was the last prophet. And Hebrews 1 says, in time past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So really what the Bible teaches is that there are no prophets like in the Old Testament today. Have a nice day. And listen, we need to deal with these issues. When someone claims to be a Christian and they have a message that could be determined to be aberrant or certainly heretical, we need to stand up for the truth and speak the truth in love. Amen? And we do so by standing on the word. And the reason for the distinction between these two groups is one group is completely lost and the other group is misrepresenting the truth. One group is deceived and the other group are deceivers. We are to deal with the deceivers of the world differently than we deal with the deceived. Listen, when engaging the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Hare Krishnas, the Baha'is, or any other religious person, tell them what we believe, and it will expose the errors of what they believe. And you will not have insulted them, and further opportunity will likely come to tell them more. Now, I say that because this is exactly what happened in Athens. Let's keep reading. And look at the spiritual engagement Paul has in verses 24 through 29. Read along with me, please. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, Paul says, God, who made the world and everything in it. Now, again, we see how important the creation narrative is to our communication of truth to the world and even the presentation of the gospel, because it establishes ownership. And when ownership is established by right of creation, it also establishes God's identity and his authority and his capabilities. And most polytheistic views have gods and goddesses for various purposes. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, sex and beauty. Athena was the goddess of reason, wisdom and war. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. Poseidon was the Greek god of the sea. Zeus, the god of the weather. But our god is God of all. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And Paul says to his audience, listen, I want to talk to you about Theos, the God, the one true God. Theos meaning the supreme being, one who has no equal, one who is exclusive in his power and ability. And he establishes that the God he is referring to made heaven and earth and cannot be contained by a temple nor represented by art or the statues made by man's hand, nor does he have any needs. In contrast, he is the one who is needed. He is the giver of life, breath, and all things, is the argument that Paul makes. 
Now, he identifies the God he is speaking of as the Lord, and his spiritual engagement continues. And that word means the supreme authority, but the word Lord can also be translated as the controller. And that's what he is telling them. The God that I'm talking to you about doesn't have an assigned task among the many gods of your belief system, but he is the one God who is in control of all things. Now, he goes and adds to this, goes on and adds to this, that the God I'm talking about not just made mankind, but he has set up appointed times in every person's life that would cause them to grope or seek after the Lord. And what Paul is saying to the Athenian deep thinkers is that this meeting we're having right now is no accident. God has ordained it. He brought me to speak to you, Paul is telling the think tank. And thus they are having a spiritual engagement according to God's divine will in hopes that they might begin their search for the true and living God that they themselves have stated they don't even know. Now he then addresses the belief of the Epicureans that the gods are distant and uninvolved when he says, the God that I know, he's not far from any of us. And then he even quotes from their poets in an effort to maintain a rapport and keep their interest in the first part of verse 28. For in him we live, move, and have our being is from the work of the 6th century philosopher uh, Epimenides. The final line in verse 28 that we are of his, off, his offspring is from another philosopher named Eratus. All the ways are full of Zeus and all the meetings, meeting places of men, the sea and the harbors are full of him. In every direction we all have to do with Zeus for we are also his offspring is the writing that Paul was quoting. Now, what we do know as fact in the face of that fable is Genesis 5, 1 and 2 says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. Male and female. How many genders is that? Just two, and that still stands today. Amen? Now, Paul is saying the image and likeness of God is man, not statuary and not idols. Even your own poets acknowledge the concept of being in the image of the gods and from them we live, move and have our being. Paul is saying, I just need to shift your thinking over to the real God, the actual God who cannot be fashioned by man's hand or contained in an earthly temple. And Paul's point was that as creatures of intrinsic value, having been created by God, we actually are the byproducts of his creation or his offspring. And therefore, men ought to refrain from false worship. And since we are made in the image of God, Paul is saying it is insulting and degrading to us to make an idol out of the true and living God. And we also need to recognize, and I've said this many times before, as far as redemption and reconciliation, the Bible teaches very clearly that we need to be adopted. And John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons and daughters of God. People today like to say we are all God's children. Well, we are all offspring of his initial creative process, began, uh, beginning with Adam and Eve and the reproductive cycle that began there. But the Bible clearly says in order to become God's child, you must be born again. Now, this is the spiritual engagement that Paul is incorporating in his efforts to reach the intelligentsia who met him in order to hear something new, whatever this seed picker may have to say. Now, this also gives us our tactic for engaging culture, and it is a balanced statement to what we ended with our last time in Acts 17, because we live in an age where there's a constant search for something new to follow, something new to make an idol out of in our day. And let me just say this in light of many of the tactical maneuvers that are going on with church dumb, and many of them are really dumb. But let me just say this this morning. Being culturally conscious is not a substitute for being biblically accurate. Being culturally conscious is not a substitute for being biblically accurate. 
Now, when Paul quoted Epimenides and Erastus, or uh, Eratus, I'm sorry, his point was that even their philosophers and poets recognize there must be an originator who gives everything life. And Paul says, that's who I'm talking to you about. I'm talking to you about the Lord, the controller. I'm talking to you about the supreme being, the theos, who is distinct from any image, idol, or personage housed by a temple who is actually made of stone. Now, Paul will tell the church at Colossa in 128 to 29, him we preach, speaking of Jesus. What's the next word? Him we preach what? Warning. Every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in who? Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Listen. Cultural awareness is a tactic, not a spiritual gift. It is Christ we preach, that every person may be warned and taught that you must be in Christ in order to become acceptable to God. And we need to teach that, whether it's culturally acceptable or part of the tolerance mantra of our day or not. And whether you're trying to reach a philosopher at the Areopagus, someone at the synagogue of the Jews, or a Gentile worshiper, biblical accuracy is never to be sacrificed for the sake of cultural sensitivities. Okay, that made it around the room eventually. But listen, the word of the Lord stands fast in the heavens. And receiving the implanted word has the capacity to save men's souls. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 19, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words of no profit. Now, when Paul says remind them of these things, he's not pointing back, he's pointing forward to what he's going to say. Charge them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Remind them to shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, The solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from what? Iniquities. Listen, quoting Epimenides and Eratus may have kept the audience's attention, but it was of no value concerning the saving of a soul. And so too is the social gospel today, the cultural sensitivity and tolerance movements of today. They might keep people listening for a moment at least, but they do nothing for the salvation of lost souls. I had a pastor on social media one time who decided it was his calling to set me straight about something that I had said. I was talking about all these cultural buzzwords and how often the church in our day is starting to talk like the world. And I had made a comment that it shouldn't be so. And he said, you know, people today are used to listening to TED Talks. And they listen to TED Talks, so there are many pastors who are incorporating TED Talk language in order to reach the people. And then he said this, you know, most of the people doing TED Talks are psychos, but... People are used to hearing how they speak. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I don't think that pastors need to adopt the language of psychos in order to communicate the truth. Amen? Amen. Now, when living a tactical Christian life and seeking to engage in a spiritual encounter, there is only one book that is living and powerful and has within its content the message that is able to save men's souls, and that is the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. Amen? Now, let's consider the inevitable results by looking at 30 through 34. Now, Paul goes on to say, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to do what? To repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now that presents Jesus as the judge of all the earth. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, and among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, as I mentioned, there are commentators who say this was one of Paul, if not Paul's most unsuccessful evangelistic attempt, and their argument is only two people responded. Well, first of all, two people responding to the gospel and believing is the very definition of a successful evangelistic effort, not an unsuccessful. And secondly, there are two people named, but there are others who also believe, including one of the Areopagites. Now, just a bit of a side note, I found this to be a curious report by one of the commentators, or actually two, that I read this past week. And they are saying that Areopagites, simply, or Areopagus, was a reference to the people, not the place. And they didn't necessarily meet on Mars Hill, as tradition says, but that was more of a reference to the men and the minds and not to a location. Now, you can file that in the needless but interesting information file if you want. Now, some say the reason for the low response to Paul's message was he didn't mention the cross. Which again is a strange thing to say because he did mention the resurrection which necessitates the cross. And therefore, the resurrection is also what makes the cross of vital importance. Listen, if Jesus died on the cross but never resurrected from the dead, he would just be within the massive number of people that the Romans executed on the cross. But listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. He said, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead, bodily resurrection? Neither group believed in that, the Epicureans or Stoics. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is what? Empty. It's of no value. And your faith is also empty or of no value. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. After all of Paul's experiences, what he's saying is, why be a Christian if all you get is brutalized and insulted and attacked? And then there's no afterlife or resurrection. There's nothing beyond this life. He says, what a pitiable existence that would be. And Paul tells the Areopagites that God has overlooked that word. It means, uh, it can be translated as to wink at, but the better translation is to not punish. He didn't punish ignorance in the past, but since the Son of God came in the likeness of sinful flesh, proved his sinless deity by resurrecting from the dead, God now commands people everywhere to repent of their idolatry. That's what Paul is saying. Now, at the mention of the resurrection, which neither group believed in, as I said, at least not of the body, some mocked. That word means, or uh, uh, that word actually means to laugh out loud. Others said, yeah, we'll hear more on this matter from you. And then we're told that some men and at least one woman was saved. Now, listen, this is the inevitable outcome of any evangelistic effort, whether it's large or small scale. Some will hear and think it's laughable. Some will wish to hear more and some will be saved. That's how evangelistic outreaches go when you're seeking to minister to more than one person, the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul would also say in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, that the message of the cross is what? Foolishness. Some people are going to think it's foolish the things that we say and believe. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, here's an opposite reaction, to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And Paul says, 
Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Human wisdom is the meaning. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Somebody say, Amen. Now listen. This is the inevitable outcome of any attempt to evangelize. Now this gives us our last tactical maneuver in going to the world to preach the gospel. And this is just a reminder. Listen this morning. Here's our third and final concluding uh, observation. We are responsible for preaching to the lost. God is responsible for saving them. We are responsible for preaching to the lost. God is responsible for saving them. This is why the accusations against Paul, in my mind, are so bizarre. Paul wasn't responsible for saving anyone. He was only responsible for sowing seeds. John 6, says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is irresponsible to place the responsibility of saving souls on the Apostle Paul. He was incapable of doing so, yet he was very capable of proclaiming the message that does save the soul. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 8, Paul would say this, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. Then he says this, I planted, meaning a seed, Apollos watered, But God gave what? God gave the increase. God actualized the salvation. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now listen, whether we are planting seeds, whether we are watering seeds someone else planted, it is always and only God who saves the soul or gives the increase. And any time there's an opportunity to evangelize a group, you may be watering a pre-planted seed, you may be planting seeds, and the response is going to be, some will think you're foolish and some are going to get saved. We are not responsible for the outcome, only to be faithful to the proclamation of the word. But even when we are faithful to the word, some are still not going to respond. And we are not responsible for their decision in rejecting Christ. We just need to be faithful to preaching Christ and him crucified. So listen, here's the thing. When we get to heaven and stand before Jesus at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where our works are tested and rewards are given. What Paul is saying when he mentioned that each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, he's telling us that what Jesus is not going to say is how many notches do you have in your evangelism belt? How many people did you lead to me? What's the head count from your labors? That's not what the Lord is going to say, but what the Lord is going to judge or measure and reward will be our faithful and biblically accurate communication of truth that allows him the opportunity to rescue the lost soul because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Listen, the only factor within our control when trying to reach the lost is biblical accuracy. And if you're trying to tickle ears through cultural acceptability, that's another gospel and it has no soul-saving power. You might have some people believe your message, but that message can't and won't save the soul. Listen, this wasn't a failed attempt at evangelism. Paul talked to them about a God they confessed they didn't know. He addressed his audience with cultural awareness of what they believed. And some wanted to hear more, some laughed out loud, and some got saved, even though all heard exactly the same thing. 
Paul was never responsible for saving them. He was only responsible for sowing and watering. And God gave the increase. Name two of them. And there were others. And this is what evangelism is about. Even yet to this very day. Listen, God is still doing that today. He is still doing what he has always done. And he is still using people like you and I who will step out by faith, who have confidence in the message proclaimed to preach Christ and him crucified. Some are going to laugh at you. Some are going to be watered by another or maybe by you again. And some people are going to get saved. But that's not up to you. That's up to God. What's up to you? is the message being packaged according to the word of God. We need to be telling people about Jesus. This whole thing's about to wrap up. Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Amen? That's an amazing time to be alive. But it's also a time of great urgency as we watch the things happening in our world today, as we see things spiraling out of control in the Middle East, as we see radical things happening in Syria, knowing Isaiah 17, 1 says Damascus is going to become a ruinous heap. It'll be an uninhabitable city at some point in time. And Damascus claims to be the longest continuously inhabited city on the face of the earth. And God said, someday, nobody's going to live there. It's going to be completely flattened. And here it is in the news every single day. Zechariah says the nations of the world are going to gather against the city of Jerusalem someday. And we have the united nobodies and the united nothings constantly condemning Israel. They call themselves the United Nations, but they're not united at all, except in the condemnation of Israel. And the whole world is against Israel today, save the United States, thankfully, because we have an Administration that recognizes the role of Israel, and he has some counselors around him. Well, listen, everything that Jesus said to look for when it's time to look up because his redemption is nigh is happening right now. And therefore, we need to finish hard. We need to finish strong. We need to be telling people about Jesus and recognize sometimes they'll laugh at us. Sometimes they'll want to hear more on another occasion. And sometimes people are going to get saved. And therefore, we need to be faithful to the word of God. Jesus is coming soon. He said he was, right? He said, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. And to that I say, come get us, Lord Jesus, and help us to be faithful until you do. Amen. And Father, we are, again, grateful this morning for this encounter with Paul. And thank you, Lord, for showing us that If we don't have masses numbers, that doesn't mean we're unsuccessful. For you're not asking us to save people. You're asking us to proclaim the message that you saved through. So help us, Lord, to realize sometimes they're going to laugh at us. Sometimes they're going to say, well, maybe you can tell me more at another time. And sometimes people are going to be saved through talking to them about the message we have and how it is distinct from that of the world. That it's not a works righteousness that we practice or believe. It is a belief that there was a work done that makes us righteous in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to have confidence in what your book says is true. And Lord, even as Paul used some wisdom and had some audience awareness... Lord, it was only to open a door to speak from the book that does contain absolute truth. So help us, Lord, even as we are culturally aware, not to diminish the message by adding things that are culturally sensitive or acceptable to the hearer. So, Lord, we thank you that we have been incorporated in what you want to do and that you have chosen the foolishness of preaching and foolish preachers to carry out your message to a lost and dying world. And Lord, we are grateful to be counted among the number of those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time in text this morning. Help us now to obey the Great Commission and go to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And all God's people in agreement said, Amen. Amen.